Well, I hope you will pray regarding the testimony next Sunday morning that uh, Elizabeth Dole will be bringing to uh, our church. I know of some who will be here who would not normally be coming to our church and uh, who are not Christians. And I'm praying that God will use her words to, to speak to their hearts. And I mean it sincerely when I ask your prayers that God will use her testimony. And I pray that, that uh, you might be burdened to bring someone too who doesn't know the Lord, who perhaps would be a little reluctant to come to our kind of a church, but who because of, of Mrs. Dole's uh, service with the government might be willing to come and hear what she has to say. She won't have the whole sermon. I do reserve that right. But she will be giving about a 10-minute testimony. And so uh, let's ask, ask God to really make it a very special day. Would you open your Bible with me, please, to Revelation chapter 11? As tonight we look at the theme, Jesus Christ is coming to reign. I anticipate that next Sunday night we will close this series on the end of the age. So it's near the end of the series. But tonight we come to the, actually to the next age, more than to the end of this one. It is that next age that will come upon the earth that we sometimes call the millennial kingdom, the thousand year reign of Christ. It says in Revelation 11 and verse 15, And the seventh angel sounded, and there arose loud voices in heaven, saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. And the twenty-four elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshipped God, saying, We give thee thanks, O Lord God, the Almighty, who art and who wast, because thou hast taken thy great power and hast begun to reign. And the nations were enraged, and thy wrath came. And the time came for the dead to be judged, and the time to give their reward to thy bondservants, the prophets, and to the saints, and to those who fear thy name, the small and the great, and to destroy those who destroy the earth. And the temple of God which is in heaven was opened, and the ark of his covenant appeared in his temple, And there were flashes of lightning, and sounds, and peals of thunder, and an earthquake, and a great hailstorm. We see at the opening of this seventh trumpet an announcement that the kingdom is about to come. In fact, the actual statement looks forward to the kingdom as though it had already arrived. Chronologically, this is about in the midpoint of the seven-year tribulation period. And yet these voices that praise God, praise Him that the kingdom has come, looking forward to the actual arrival and execution of judgment and then the establishment of the kingdom of Christ. The kingdom reign of the Lord Jesus Christ is not limited to the book of the Revelation. The theme of the kingdom goes all the way back into the Old Testament. For example, the kingdom was typified by one of the feasts of the Lord called the Feast of Tabernacles. 
You may recall that in ancient Israel, God arranged for seven feasts of Jehovah throughout the calendar year for the people of Israel. Now, there were several purposes in these feasts. One was that so that three times a year, there might be a gathering together of all the males of Israel to Jerusalem. It was a convocation of the people of God, a celebration, rejoicing uh, as a nation. It was one way in which God intended to tie them together as a unified people. Furthermore, God wanted to regularly remind them of how he had dealt with them in history. The feast looked back to what God had done for the nation of Israel. They were memorials praising God for his actions on behalf of his people. But the feasts also looked forward. They spoke of something that God was going to do. Now, undoubtedly, the Jewish people did not perceive all of that as they celebrated those feasts hundreds of years ago, thousands of years ago. But today, as we look back upon the feasts of the Lord, we see that they outline for us the events dealing with Israel. The last, the seventh of the feasts of the Lord was the Feast of Tabernacles. It was celebrated for a week. The people lived in booths or tabernacles made of sheaths that were constructed uh, and in which during those days they lived with great joy and rejoicing. Typically speaking, forwardly speaking, the Feast of Tabernacles spoke of the coming kingdom when the people of Israel would be gathered back to their homeland and would dwell there safely, the Lord himself meeting their needs. The kingdom was further spoken of in several of the covenants that God made with his people. The Palestinian covenant promised a land to the people of Israel, a land which they have never yet historically fully possessed, but which they will possess in the kingdom that is to come. The Abrahamic covenant, again, promised a land and a seed to Abraham that will be fulfilled in the coming kingdom. The Davidic covenant, the covenant that God made with David, promised him a seed that would reign upon a throne forever and forever. And that Davidic covenant will be fulfilled in the reign of Jesus Christ in the kingdom. And so the covenants demand a future fulfillment of the reign of Jesus Christ. And then the kingdom is predicted by the prophets in numerous places, some of which we will be looking at this evening. But I would like you to turn back to one of the key prophets, and that is to Daniel. To the second chapter of Daniel, we looked in Jan Daniel 10 this morning for another purpose, but let's look in Daniel chapter 2 for just a moment. We have here uh, a recitation and interpretation of the great dream of King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon. Daniel is given understanding by the Lord of this dream. And uh, he repeats it to Nebuchadnezzar and then explains it to him. Now, we do not have time to look at the whole dream. 
But you will recall that there was a statue made of various kinds of uh, material. And he mentions the last part of the statue in verses 31, 32, 33. And then in the verse 34 he says, You continued looking until a stone was cut out without hands. And it struck the statue on its feet of iron and clay and crushed them. And now if you will just look down a few more verses to verse 44, as he begins to give an interpretation, or actually concludes giving the interpretation of the dream that Nebuchadnezzar had. And in those, and in the days of those kings, that is the kings of the last part of this statue, as we would say it today, in the days when that Roman Empire will be regathered and revived in the tribulation period. In those days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which will never be destroyed, and that kingdom will not be left for another people. It will crush and put an end to all these kingdoms, but it will itself endure forever. Inasmuch as you saw that a stone was cut out of the mountain without hands, and that it crushed the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold, the great God has made known to the king what will take place in the future. So the dream is true and its interpretation is trustworthy. Now what is this that Daniel is predicting? Well, he is saying that there will be a flow of Gentile world history. From Babylon to Persia to Greece to Rome. The Roman Empire was actually never conquered, as you probably know, but actually collapsed out of, its, out of the weight of its own decay and immorality. The Bible indicates to us that the essence of the ancient Roman Empire will in the last days be congealed again. Some see it in the common market of Europe, at least economically. That at least is a foreshadowing of what will come to pass in that tribulation period. So the last part of the statue, the iron and the clay and mixture, that which made up the feet of the statue, will be the part of it that will be politically active in the last days. And in the dream, a stone that is cut out of a mountain without hands being involved in it, in other words, a stone that is supernaturally created, will fall upon the feet of the statue and will destroy it from its feet on up. It will all be destroyed. All of the Gentile world power will be destroyed as that stone falls upon it. And that stone is a picture, prophetically, of the coming kingdom of Jesus Christ. When his kingdom is established, it will be the end of Gentile world domination. And then the Jews... Or better, Jesus Christ will reign through the Jewish nation. And uh, the reign will return to Jerusalem and to the son of David. Now there are other prophecies here in Daniel and elsewhere we could go into. But just understand that the kingdom, the coming kingdom, is not some isolated part of Scripture. It is a heavy theme throughout Scripture. 
that there is a righteous kingdom coming upon the earth. Now we know that that is going to be preceded by a terrible time of lawlessness and judgment upon the earth, a time of uh, supernatural events and intervention as God brings down these Gentile world powers. What will the kingdom be like? What will be the conditions upon the earth when Jesus Christ personally reigns upon his throne of glory? Well, we want to try to answer that question tonight, perhaps uh, next Sunday night as well. Would you turn with me first to Revelation chapter 20? As we see what appears to be one of the first things that happens after the battle of Armageddon, after that great war that we have looked at on previous occasions. Revelation chapter 20, verse 1. John writes these words, And I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the key of the abyss, and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan. So let there be no mistake as to the identity of this individual. And he bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the abyss and shut it and sealed it over him so that he should not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were completed. After these things, he must be released for a short time. Uh, we'll try to talk about that briefly, uh, perhaps next week. But for the moment, notice that at the beginning of this thousand-year period, Satan is seized, he is chained, he is thrown into the abyss that God has prepared for him, that is sealed over him, so that he is incarcerated there for this entire 1,000-year period. Satan has not yet known any imprisonment. He has known a fall from heaven when he was cast out because of sin found in him. He will know a fall from the heavens to the earth in the tribulation period. But never before in history will Satan have known incarceration until that time. It is impossible that there might be any peace upon the earth, that there might be any restoration of its Edenic beauty until this creature of evil is incarcerated so that he can no longer do his works upon the face of the earth. Someone has asked the question, why is he then allowed out of this abyss for the time that is mentioned. I have to agree with what Dr. Chafer said. If you will tell me why God let him loose in the first place, I will tell you why God lets him loose the second time. <laughs> I think that we can have some understanding of why he is loosened, but we'll leave that for another time. But please notice that the beginning of the millennium involves the binding and the imprisonment of Satan. And we assume with him those angelic powers that are allied with him. These spirits, uh, the rulers, the princes that we have alluded to on Sunday morning, the last couple of times we've been together. 
following that, it seems that God is then going to lift the curse that he placed upon the earth in Genesis 3.17. Part of the fall of man involved a curse that God placed upon his creation. It's not that the creation itself was guilty or responsible for man's fall, but because man was given rule over the creation. When man fell, God placed a curse upon the kingdom that had been man's. We read in Romans chapter 8, and maybe you ought to turn there with me, a word regarding the present condition of the created world. It says in verse 18, Romans 8, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Paul is here thinking about the Lord's coming, our being with him, the Lord's reign. He says, For the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the Son's of God. He says that it's as though the creation is with outstretched hands, expectantly and patiently waiting for God's children to be recognized and glorified because when that happens, the creation seems to intuitively know that it itself will be released from the curse that has been placed upon it. He goes on to say the creation was subjected to futility. In other words, the full purpose of the creation has been uh, not fulfilled. There has not been the ability for it to be fulfilled because of sin and its curse. And so the creation was subjected to this sense of uh, incompletion not of its own will, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself also will be liberated, set free from its slavery to corruption, into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. What is the apostle saying? He is saying that the created order itself is one day going to be liberated from the curse that has been placed upon it because of mankind's sin. Oh, what a day that's going to be. As the earth is then restored to a beauty that it has not known in these thousands of years since Adam and Eve fell in the garden. We have uh, in the Bible a number of different results of the curse being lifted. Isaiah chapter 65 suggests several of them. Go back there with me. This great prophet wrote in Isaiah 65 uh, regarding those days. And we're going to start in verse 17. He says, Behold, I create new heavens and a new earth. The former things shall not be remembered or come to mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in what I create, and behold, I create Jerusalem for rejoicing and her people for gladness. He says, I will also rejoice 
in Jerusalem and be glad in my people, and there will no longer be heard in her the voice of weeping and the sound of crying. No longer will there be in it an infant who lives but a few days, or an old man who does not live out his days. For the youth will die at the age of one hundred, and the one who does not reach the age of one hundred shall be thought accursed. And they shall build houses and inhabit them. They shall also plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They shall not build and another inhabit. They shall not plant and another eat. For as the lifetime of a tree, so shall be the days of my people. And my chosen ones shall wear out the work of their hands. They shall not labor in vain or bear children for calamity. For they are the offspring of those blessed by the Lord and their descendants with them. Now here we have some things at least suggested to us regarding the conditions after the curse is lifted. It suggests to us in verses 21 and 22, as well as in Amos chapter 9, verses 13 and 14, and in Isaiah chapter 35, and I think we'll look at that in a moment. It suggests to us that there will be in the kingdom time agricultural prosperity. One very definite aspect of the curse has been the toil that has been necessary to bring forth the fruit from the earth. There naturally arises from the the earth weeds and that which destroys and corrupts the good. But in the kingdom, all of that will not be any longer in existence. It seems as though the earth will produce in its bounty. And there will not be those uh, aspects of agriculture that make it difficult for us to produce crops these days. The earth will in that day produce abundantly so that there will not have to be the kind of toil there is today. So that there will not be a shortage of food. Uh, in any part of the earth during that kingdom period. Turn back with me to Isaiah 35 for just a minute. And look here at verses 1 and 2. Notice he says, The wilderness and the desert will be glad. The Araba will rejoice and blossom. These are... uh, deserted uh, wilderness areas, he says that they're going to blossom and be glad. Like the crocus, it will blossom profusely and rejoice with rejoicing and shout of joy. The glory of Lebanon will be given to it, the majesty of Carmel and Sharon. They will see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God. Turn back to chapter 30 for a minute. Uh, we, we must cut into the middle of the context here, but look at verse 30, or rather, verse 26. It says, And the light of the moon will be as the light of the sun, and the light of the sun will be seven times brighter, like the light of, the, of seven days on the day of the Lord. On the day, rather, the Lord binds up the fracture of his people and heals the bruise he has inflicted. Now, there are those who believe that this may indicate that there will be a change uh, in the sunlight in the millennial reign. 
perhaps an elongated day. Uh, Perhaps God is going to again affect the atmosphere, uh, as he did apparently in those days before the flood, so that there were not the extremes of weather that we have today with polar regions and tropical regions, but that there will be an elongation of the day and a uh, tempering of weather conditions so that that will join with the curse being lifted from the ground so that there will be an abundance of crops produced throughout the world in the millennial reign of Christ. That is one result, at least. There will be agricultural prosperity. And then we notice that there is at least the suggestion here in chapter 65 of Isaiah, the 23rd verse, that uh, the pain of childbirth will be removed in that time. Now, I can see you ladies wishing that you might have postponed uh, birth a little while. No, it's, it's good that you didn't. It's good that you didn't. But it does seem that when birth occurs, because you recall that childbirth is a part of the curse, or rather pain in childbirth, travail in childbirth is a part of the curse, that that too will be lifted during the millennial reign of Christ. It is interesting to notice in verse 25, it says, The wolf and the lamb shall graze together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. And so there will be a peace in the animal kingdom. It seems as though no longer will animals prey upon one another, but that there will be a peace among the animals. But he goes on to say here, And dust shall be the serpent's food. What is different from that today? Uh, Absolutely nothing. You recall that when the curse was placed upon uh, the creation back in Genesis 3, that part of the curse was upon the serpent, that he would crawl upon his belly and would eat dust. And it seems as though that God retains that portion of the curse in the millennial reign upon the serpent because no longer is he given Uh, legs to walk upon, but rather he must crawl upon the earth and continue to eat dust. Well, let's go back to Isaiah 35 for just a moment, and uh, we'll read on down through verses 3, 4, and 5 here. Notice that he says, Encourage the exhausted and strengthen the feeble. Say to those with anxious heart, Take courage, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance. The recompense of God will come, but he will save you. Then the eyes of the blind will be opened. The ears of the deaf will be unstopped. Then the lame will leap like a deer, and the tongue of the dumb will shout for joy. For waters will break forth in the wilderness and streams in the Arabah. He goes on again to describe the the, uh, prosperity in nature. But notice that it seems as though... Uh, in the millennial reign of Christ, as the curse is lifted, that there will be a correction of those deformities that come sometimes with birth. Congenital sorts of deformities will be corrected, and uh, it suggests that sickness will be removed in that period of time. Isaiah 65 suggests to us that life itself will be elongated, that even when a person is a hundred years old and would die, that that would be considered an early death. And so just as life was 
longer in the days of the patriarchs, and particularly in the days before the flood. So it seems that conditions in the millennium will be similar to allow the length of days, to allow long life. Now, think with me a moment and realize that because of agricultural prosperity, because of the correction of deformity and the removal of disease, because of peace among the animals in their kingdom, uh, because of length of life, the population of the earth in the millennium will soar. The population will undoubtedly be small at the beginning, that is, of those who will enter into the kingdom in their natural bodies. Only the righteous, those saved in the tribulation period and who live through those days, only they will enter into the kingdom in a natural body, like you and I have. Others will have resurrection bodies. But they will have natural bodies and length of life and blessing. And as a result of being in natural bodies and marrying, beginning families, the population of the earth will begin to grow. There will not be war. There will not be disease. There will not be famine. And because of that, the population of the earth by the end of the thousand-year reign of Christ will be a population that is unparalleled in human history. The five billion that we have upon the earth today will be perhaps but a drop in the bucket of the population that will be on the earth by the end of the thousand-year reign of Christ because the curse has been lifted. And so we see that the first thing that happens as the millennium begins is the curse, or rather the Satan is bound. That is quickly followed by the lifting of the curse. Third, there will be universal peace as the king reigns. Quite in contrast to the wars and the rumors of wars, which will characterize the end times, the kingdom reign of Jesus Christ will be known for absolute peace. And may I say, a peace that will be enforced by his righteous rule. It says that he will rule with a rod of iron, which speaks of his absolute sovereignty over the earth. And because he is a righteous king, there will be peace that will flow out of his rule. And that peace will extend throughout the earth. He is entitled the Prince of Peace, Isaiah chapter 9. And so we have the prophecies uh, of the Old Testament that say that the weapons of warfare will be turned into instruments of agriculture. No longer will there be a need to invest hundreds of billions of dollars and of resources into weapons for nations. Just think what good could be done today if we no longer had to spend a cent on defense. And if every nation would take every dime that is spent on weapons and warfare and terrorism and would turn that to some good purpose, Think of the good that could be done.
Now, of course, that is quite impractical in the day in which we live because uh, Jesus Christ does not reign today. There is not a righteous rule of any person upon the earth. Uh, sin has afflicted every nation, including our own. We are not righteous and just in everything that we do in the world. Let's not kid ourselves. And so uh, armaments seem to be a necessity in the day of man because of man's sin. But in that day, none of these things will be required. And all of the energy and all of the resources now poured into that part of, of the economy of the world can be utilized for good and righteous purposes. <clears throat> and so universal peace will not only have a, a very wonderful feeling to us emotionally and to all the citizens of the world, it will have a very practical result in that these vast sums can be used for good. And as I've already suggested, the peace includes uh, the animal kingdom. Just one more reference regarding that, Isaiah chapter 11, uh, verses 6 through 9. It says, And the wolf will dwell with the lamb, and the leopard will lie down with the kid, the goat, and the calf and the young lion and the fatling together. And a little boy will lead them. And the cow and the bear will graze. Their young will lie down together. And the lion will eat straw like the ox. And the nursing child will play by the hole of the cobra. And the wean child will put his hand on the viper's den. They will not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. Now, a mountain symbolically speaks of a kingdom. And that's what the Lord is saying here. In all of his holy kingdom. For the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. You know, as you read words like this, your heart just aches for the reality of these things. There's a great deal that must come upon the earth before this day can arrive. But, beloved, let us rejoice tonight that the King is coming. And one day he is coming back to the earth to establish the kingdom that we're studying about. And we'll continue looking at some of the conditions on the millennial reign, uh, the Lord willing, next week. But I'd like for you to open your hymnal and sing with me a hymn by Isaac Watts. It's number 246. Isaac Watts lived in a day when the, the most common understanding of prophecy, of future things, was interpreted as post-millennial. They believed that the world was going to get better and better, that the gospel was going to be preached to the ends of the earth, that uh, eventually society would all be transformed, things would become peaceful and perfect throughout the earth, and then... Then the Lord would come. That is a theory regarding prophetic things that pretty well went its way in World War I. When the earth uh, suddenly was no longer getting better and better, but worse and worse and quickly. And today we can see that that is a theory regarding eschatology or the study of last things that uh, is not correct. The earth is going to get worse and worse 
before Jesus comes and makes it perfect. But nonetheless, Isaac Watts, writing in his day from his understanding of things, writes some words that are meaningful to us as we envision and expect this future coming of the Lord and his reign upon the earth. So would you stand with me and let's sing together, Jesus shall reign. Jesus shall reign where the sun does his successive journeys run. His kingdom stretch from shore to shore till moon shall and wane no more. To him shall endless prayer be made, and praises strong to crown his head. His name like sweet perfume shall study of scripture that in the millennial reign of Christ there will be sacrifices offered in memoriam to his great sacrifice at the cross. The Old Testament speaks of a a new temple in Jerusalem uh, and of sacrifices that are offered there and the Feast of Tabernacles which speaks prophetically of the kingdom will be observed again in the millennium by the Jewish people. And so that is the meaning of that second verse. Now let's sing that third verse. People and realms of every tongue dwell on his love with sweetest songs and infant voices shall proclaim their early blessings on his name. Let every creature rise and bring honors peculiar to our King. Angels with songs of songs Let's have a word of prayer. Would you join me, please? And our Lord, we look forward to this day of heaven's rule over the earth, when the great kingdom of God will be finally and fully established in this world, and righteousness and peace will characterize it. How we look forward to that day, when the Son of Righteousness will rise with healing in his wings for the nations of the earth. 
We recognize that much must happen before that day, but our Father, we do greatly anticipate it nonetheless. And our hearts long expectantly for the arrival of that day. And uh, we join, as it were, with nature itself in reaching out our hands to you and longing, praying for the coming of the kingdom of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And even as we now are citizens of that coming kingdom, may we so live. May our lives be worthy even in this world where we are aliens of the name of our King. And may we represent him well, whom you have called us to serve in this generation. In his name we pray, amen.